Bibles with you this morning, open to Isaiah chapter 26. I had really, when I was working through the sermon schedule, way uh, back whenever it was in December, um, I really wasn't thinking about Friends and Family Sunday and trying to pick a message that would land on that Sunday. Uh, this just happened to be the Lord's plan, I guess, because I wasn't involved in it. But I think it's an incredibly important message for us today. We live in a world which is in complete turmoil. And while it may not be quite as evident to us right here in Franklin County as it is in other parts of our world, nevertheless, if you turn on the news, if you watch any of the uh, podcasts and news feeds and all of the things that we have in our day and age, you see that this entire world is in turmoil. There is unsettledness, there is warfare, there is uncertainty uh, as in, as has not been for many, many days. And so we begin to wonder, don't we, what in the world is God doing? And sometimes, if we're really honest, we ask ourselves the question, does God even exist? Is He really there? And if He is, does He even care about what's going on in the world? As we look into Isaiah 26 this morning, we get a little background and so forth and refresh our minds of some of the things we've talked about in previous weeks. I hope that you begin to see that God is here. He does exist and He is very much involved in this world. And he is very much concerned about those who are his children. He does have a purpose. And it's not just to make this life easy. In fact, that's not really God's purpose. God's purpose is to prepare us for being in his presence in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. So as we begin this morning, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this world we live in. It is a beautiful world. We thank you for the people that are around us. We thank you for their friendship. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to know them and to be enriched uh, in ourselves and hopefully to share of ourselves so that we might enrich others. Father, we realize, though, that this world is in turmoil and that there is far, far more to this world and to this life than what we see before our eyes today. So Lord, in these moments that we have together and in your word, I pray that you will speak through your word by your spirit, that we will understand more clearly the comfort, the peace, the assurance that we can have as we watch you work out all of your plans and purposes in this world. These things are not happening by accident. They are not catching you off guard. You are accomplishing something that will give us joy and reason to rejoice for all of eternity. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. Help us to see that today and to rejoice in the care that you provide for your children. We ask it in your precious name. 
Amen. When we get to Isaiah 26, we have covered a lot of territory. Now we kind of skimmed over chapters 13 through 23 uh, very quickly, but let me just refresh our memories on what we've seen so far in Isaiah. So far in Isaiah, we have seen the disaster that was the nation of Israel. They had been chosen by God to be God's special people to receive His law, to receive the worship instructions, to receive the message that God was going to make salvation available, not just to the Jew himself, but in fact to the whole world. God chose the descendants of Abraham, yes, for a special relationship, but within that relationship they were charged with being a light to the Gentiles, so that even the Gentiles would know the truth and come to worship the living and true God. Sadly, for the most part, they failed. Oh, there were some little bright glimmers here and there, but for the most part, not only did they fail to, to spread the good news of salvation to the world, but they themselves turned from God, rejected God, put substitutes in God's place, primarily pleasure, and so God brought them into judgment. And it was some fierce judgment, wasn't it? God brought the Assyrians and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the judgment even extends back to the, the period of division within the nation of Israel, dividing after King Solomon's death into a northern portion called Israel and the southern portion called Judah. There was no peace in the house of Israel. There was warfare, and there was division, and there was strife. Why? Because they were rejecting God. But then God brought the Assyrians in and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And did Judah listen? Did they listen to what the, the prophets were saying? Did they listen to Isaiah? No. They too continued to turn away from God. God brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and destroyed the nation of Judah and carried them off into captivity. And from that moment on, Israel has not possessed her homeland, that God-given homeland, in an autonomous way. Even in 1948, when Israel finally was once again recognized as a nation among all the nations of the earth, there were lots of nations who continued to cry for its destruction. Because the people of Israel, though they were coming back to the land, were coming back in unbelief. And even to this day, the vast, vast majority of Jewish people still reject Jesus as the Messiah. And look at the turmoil. Not just that Jerusalem was in, but that all the world was in and is in. Because you see, when the nation of Israel is in a right relationship with their God, God grants them peace. And it's through that peace that, that God begins to extend that invitation of peace once again to all the nations of the earth. But we don't want it. We don't want it. Oh, we want peace, don't we? We want people to stop shooting bullets. We want people to stop being mean to each other. But do we want the kind of peace that is portrayed in the Word of God? That kind of peace that comes 
when a person, man, woman, boy, or girl, is in a spiritually right relationship with God? No, we really don't want that. Because that means that we have to confess that we have been in rebellion against God. It means that we have to confess that we really don't want God running our lives. That, that we think we can do it better than our Creator. Oh, we want that kind of peace that allows us to do what we want to do. But we don't want true peace. The kind of peace that puts us in a right relationship with Almighty God. And so when we reject that peace, our world is just filled with turmoil. And God is doing amazing things. You know, in the midst of all that prophesied work about the Assyrians coming and the Babylonians coming and all the destruction and, and empires rising and falling and all of that is God at work accomplishing His purpose. God is going to bring His peace to this world. And He's at the same time going to eventually remove those who reject that peace and establish those who receive that peace. All of that is what's happening. You look at the headlines in the newspaper or on the internet these days, and, and it's tempting for us to think that all of these nations are doing things in their own self-interest. And in a sense, they are. But behind the scenes, the sovereign God is working out His plan and purpose. And it will culminate with the kind of peace that God brings to people. The kind of peace that changes hearts and minds and lives. The kind of peace that reconciles the, the God-hating sinner to the very God whom he hates. It's a supernatural thing. So with that as the background, let's take a look here chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 1. In that day, remember that little phrase often reminds us that we're thinking about a future day. We're thinking not in the immediate present, but in a future time when God's plans and purposes have been accomplished. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So now we're looking at a time when Judah, the, the nation of Israel, has turned its eyes once again to God and cried out to God for mercy and help, and God has delivered them. Verse 2, or the end of verse 1, We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. This is a period of time when God's people have turned to Him and God is working with them once again and He's preserving and protecting them. This is coming out of all of this trial and turmoil and tribulation and judgment. But what can the righteous do? What can that remnant do? There's always been a few, haven't there, who have trusted in God. Isaiah certainly was one in his day. And there were others. There were some good kings later on. Hezekiah is going to be a good king, and we'll talk about him later on in the 
in the series, but there have always been those who have turned to God and looked to Him and trusted in Him in the midst of all of the turmoil and chaos. In the midst of all the judgment that God brings, there are always those who are trusting in Him. But how can they keep their sanity in the midst of all the turmoil that's going on? Verses 3 and 4 give us the answer. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. You will keep Him in perfect peace. Notice who is taking responsibility for the keeping. It's God Himself. Now there's a, a blend here. And I can't, I can't begin to explain it all. All I can do is see it and point to it and say, Ha ha, there it is. It's called divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God expects a response from people. And God works in us in relationship to that response. And yet God is the one who initiates that response. We learn in the New Testament that it's the Holy Spirit of God who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The New Testament is very clear in Romans chapter 3. There is none who seeks after God. So if there aren't any people who are looking for God, how is it that anybody ever finds God? I think it's exactly illustrated for us in the Garden of Eden. When Adam rebelled against his Creator and did that which God had forbidden him to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who went looking for whom? God went looking for Adam, didn't he? And God asked, asked Adam a question. Adam, have you eaten from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden of which I commanded you not to eat? God went looking for Adam to restore that broken relationship. And God offered a question to which Adam needed to make a reply. But what did Adam do? He sidestepped it, didn't he? He says, oh, it's this woman you gave me. And then she sidestepped it. She's, well, it was the serpent. That's as close as I can come to describing the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is always the initiator. He's the one who brings conviction. He's the one who reaches out. He's the one who places that longing in our heart for something bigger than ourselves. And at the same time, we are responsible to respond properly to what God is doing. He's in the driver's seat. He's in control. He's the sovereign God of the universe. And He condescends to reach out to each of us. And when we respond to Him, God is the one who does the keeping. Why? Why, why must that be true? Well, 
As a believer in Jesus Christ, have you ever had a doubt in your mind about Him? I have. Sure. When some great tragedy befalls us, when we get news that we don't want to hear, when we get the knock on the door at 2 a.m. And, and there stands a, a, a trooper or a person from the, the coroner's office and they give us the worst news that we could ever possibly hear, when our world seems to be crumbling down on top of us, it's natural to wonder. It's natural to have a doubt. That's not unusual at all. And it's in those moments of doubt when we feel like we can't hold on anymore that God holds us in His hand. God is the one doing the keeping. You see, our emotions are going to change. Our feelings about life are going to change. God never changes. He never changes. He holds us in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch us out of his hand. You will keep him in perfect peace. Literally, the Hebrew here says, peace, peace. You will keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is fixed on you. This is a complete, I, I like the way our English translators have done it. They've said perfect peace. They're communicating to us in English what's crystal clear there in the Hebrew, and that is, this is a complete peace. It's the word shalom. And it goes way beyond just the removal of violence from the world. I mean, right now, we're sitting here in this sanctuary and there is no violence happening in our lives right now. But are we at peace? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're at peace with God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're probably sitting there in the midst of this quiet room thinking, oh man, you know, I've got all these issues and worries and, and and of course, my biggest worry is what's going to happen to me when I die. I mean, I don't want to think about that, but everybody that has ever gone before me has died. What's going to happen to me when I die? You see, it's that peace, peace, it's that perfect peace, that shalom that God brings that settles even those questions because when I am in a right relationship through Jesus Christ, my Creator, and I am not having to fear eternity, I have peace. Jesus said it well, didn't He, in John chapter 16. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have plenty of trouble in this world. He's talking to His own. He's talking to the disciples there in the upper room. In this world, you're going to have problems. They're going to come by the bucket load. They're going to come by the basket full. They're going to fall on top of your head so thick and so fast and so furiously that you're going to wonder if you're even going to survive. You say, where was all that in that verse? Oh, it's there. It's there. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good comfort. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And we read later in Romans, as the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, begins to explain things more fully. What a great theology Romans is. I hope you read through Romans at least once a year. As you read through that, you discover that this keeping power of Christ keeps us firm, and, and that peace that God brings passes all understanding, and, and that it, it keeps us safe and secure in Him. What a great blessing. What a great, great blessing. There is, though, a warning, and it comes to us after Isaiah's time. Isaiah was about 140 years before the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah was a prophet <clears throat> who lived to see and lived partially through that Babylonian captivity period. And in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, he's describing there the condition, the quality of the religious leadership of his day. The guys who were supposed to be pointing people to God and calling them to repentance. Remember the purpose of the prophet? The purpose of the prophet was to warn God's people, to point out their sin, to tell them what was going to happen if they did not repent of their sin, and to encourage them that repentance will bring restoration and joy. Well, they had stopped doing that in Jeremiah's day. They weren't confronting the people anymore. In fact, in Jeremiah 6, it says that the prophet and the priest are as bad as the people. And then in verse 14, God says through Jeremiah, Woe, woe to those who cry peace, peace, when there is no peace. They heal my people lightly. Well, there's a lot of folks in our world today that are promoting peace, peace. They're, they're, they're looking to science. They're looking to economies. They're looking to military power. And saying, oh, we've got all these wonderful things in place. Peace, peace. We don't, we don't need to worry. We can settle down. Everything's going to be okay. If we just do this, if we just do that, if we, if we get all this, everything's going to be fine and we can just go about our business. And, and they're just eliminating all the spiritual implications of our true condition in the world today. They don't even want to consider God. And yet they want peace, don't they? You see, there is no true peace apart from the peace that Jesus Christ brings us. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Do you really trust God? Do I? In the moment of crisis, where does your thought go first? Because that's probably what you're trusting in. In the moment of crisis, do we most frequently say, why me? It's because we're trusting in me. We're trusting in ourselves. 
in the moment of crisis, do we quickly look at the bank account and say, oh, I've got the money, I can cover this. In the moment of crisis, do we say, oh, I've got health insurance, we're, we're good to go. Because if that's what our minds turn to first, that's probably, probably what we're really trusting in. But in the moment of crisis, if we cry out and say, oh God, I don't know what's going on here, but I need you, that's probably who we're trusting in. This is a hard, hard lesson for us, isn't it? Our mind is stayed, it's fixed, it's focused, it's anchored in Jesus Christ. You see, circumstances are going to be up and down all the time. They're going to change from one minute to the next. We can be in perfect health one minute and then not be the next. We can, we can look at our bank accounts and our stock portfolios and our retirement 401k plans and we can look at, look at all that money and the news the next day might say guess what it's all wrong what are you going to do it's all numbers on paper we left the gold standard years and years ago there's, there's nothing behind it I know it says full faith and credit the US government on your printed money well how good is that all, it's all nothing. Vanity, vanity, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. And he's right. Another way to translate that is emptiness. Emptiness, emptiness. Everything is emptiness. But when you fix your mind on Jesus Christ, when you have Him fully before your mind, then life has purpose and meaning. Then when life knocks us flat on our backs, we're already looking up. We're already seeing that God is at work, even in the midst of hardship. Why does God keep us? Because He trusts in you. Trust is so important. It, it's faith. It's a dependence on we are we depending on God? Are we do we have faith in Him? And faith is not just that little kind of oh I hope so, but I really don't know how it's gonna turn out. No, faith is that rock solid decision that's based on the evidence which God provides. It's not some blind leap in the dark. God has provided evidence. He's provided evidence in creation. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Creation itself is one of the means of God's revelation to us. But He's also given us this book. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke through the prophets, Hebrews 1 starts out, now, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son. You can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can have a record of what Jesus did and said. 
We have gobs of evidence. And faith looks at creation and looks at the written revelation of God's Word and says, you know what? I'm going to anchor my faith, my trust in the evidence that God has provided of His existence, of His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, all of those things. I'm going to trust Him. He is the creator of the universe. He's the author of my life. I'm going to trust Him. That's faith. It's not just some Oh man, I hope there's a God somewhere. I'm going to jump off this cliff and I hope He catches me. No, no, that's not faith. That's stupidity. <laughs> faith looks at the evidence and we fix our minds on Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. Notice that word Lord. It should be all in capital letters in your Bible. That's the divine name, Yahweh. The I Am. The self-existent one. Can you keep yourself alive? Can you keep yourself from getting hungry? Can you keep your heart beating? Can you keep your breath functioning? Nope. That's outside of our control, isn't it? God is the one who keeps us functioning, keeps us alive. We live in His world, we breathe His air, we eat His food. Everything that we have comes from Almighty God. He alone is the self-existent one. He's the one who's brought everything into existence that does exist. That's who we're supposed to put our trust in. For in Yah, or God, it's, it's, it's a little shortened form of Yahweh. It's a, it's a shortened form. For in, in that I am, again, is ever, for in Yah, the Lord, again we have that, same word. So the name of God appears three times. Yahweh, Yah, Yahweh. The Lord, God, the Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. All three involved in our salvation. All three persons of that, and please don't ask me to explain it. I can't. It's, it's another one of those things. The scriptures reveal it, and talk about it. I can point to it, and I can say, there it is, but I can't explain how it works. Because I can't explain God, and neither can you. It's one of those things that we see the evidence of it, and we believe it. We accept it. We say, you know what? I don't understand it, but, but God is a being unlike me. God is a being like any other being in the, in the universe. God is the source of all things. Of course He's going to be more complicated than I can figure out. Of course He's going to be different. Okay, I accept that. But I want us to understand that it is God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, 
who is interested in us. We picture it in, in baptism, where there's one substance, the water, and we recognize that God the Father planned our salvation in eternity past. God the Son accomplished salvation on the cross and through the resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit brings salvation when He convicts our hearts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then we respond to that and He indwells us and empowers us to live a God-honoring life. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, or God, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Do you want to know how to deal with the world in which we live, beloved? Make sure that your relationship with Jesus Christ is rock solid. If you know the rock, you can live in these days. Now, isn't this interesting? Those last two words, everlasting strength, the translators are helping us. Let me give you the Hebrew. The eternal rock. That's what's there. For in God, the Lord, is the eternal rock. Jesus talked about a man, two men, didn't he? One fellow built his house on the sand. The winds came, floods rose up beat against the house, and what happened? <laughs> Fell right over. Gone. Another fellow built his house on the rock. And the winds came, and the floods came up, and beat on that house. And what happened? It stood. Beloved, I have no idea what winds and floods and calamities there may be in the future for you and for me, either personally or as believers in Christ. I, I, I don't know. But I know this, if we are anchored on the rock, we will not be overwhelmed. The floods may rise, the storms may beat, the rains may come, the tragedies may fall in bucket loads and heaps. But if we're anchored to Jesus Christ, he will keep us and we will prevail. Beloved, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't leave this place. Don't, don't leave our picnic grounds without talking to me about that. Or, or any of the folks that you've seen up here this morning. I mean, we'd be delighted to talk to you about Jesus. Don't, don't put that off. Don't reject Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you know Him, the admonition is to deepen that relationship. Strengthen. Ask the hard questions. You know, do I experience that perfect peace? Am I really anchored to the rock or am I allowing myself to be scared and influenced and changed and, and, and all by the things that are around me? Is Jesus Christ the first one that I turn to? Is that where my thought goes immediately when tragedy comes or is it somewhere else? If you're a believer in Christ, I would encourage you. Commit yourself afresh 
Be like David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any wicked way in me. Oh, it sneaks in, but it doesn't have to. Fix our minds on Christ. He will keep us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And boy, do we ever need that word in the days in which we live. Father, we pray that as we go about our daily activities, that our faith in Jesus Christ would be evident to all around us. That it would be our faith in Jesus Christ that would determine the choices that we make the responses that we make to the circumstances of this life. Father, help us, please, to keep our minds fixed on You. You will keep us, Lord, but we need to fulfill our responsibility. We need to stay focused on Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. I pray in Your precious name. Amen.